Good morning. My name is Rachel, and I'm from the Spring Hill House Church in Beaver Creek. This morning we'll be reading James 4, verses 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So if you're just joining us, we uh, started a series a couple weeks ago called Gospel Answers. And uh, we are addressing uh, questions that have been raised. Uh, Most of those questions have to do with uh, relational issues, relationships within families, relationships uh, within the church. Uh, We're going to be talking about... um, uh, some church leadership later on in the series. We're also going to be looking at uh, the church's relationship to government, and so uh, some, some uh, fun topics ahead. But last week, we started with this question, how should Christians handle conflict? Particularly, how should Christians handle conflict with other Christians? Right? Um, so if, if, you were, if you were here last week, you might remember, um, we, we talked about the fact that, that uh, conflict is a reality. Like conflict is, is something that we will deal with. And the reason for that is whenever you have a, a, a sinner who is in relationship with another sinner, conflict is going to happen. And since we are all sinners uh, in our relationships with one another, there's going to be a conflict. And so it's not a question of if we'll have question. The question is, is when we have conflict, what will be the result? When we have conflict, uh, what, what will happen out of that? You see, there's one of two options really for us. When we are in conflict with with other people, we can either um, seek reconciliation and restoration with one another. We can seek reconciliation and and we can promote the gospel. We We can affirm that the gospel is true or we can deny reconciliation. We, we, we can divide from one another. We can go our own separate ways and in so doing, we can deny the gospel. There's two ways to go here. Um, the reality is, is that without confrontation, there's not reconciliation. 
And, and to be clear, when, when we talk about confrontation, confrontation is speaking the truth in love. And, and the ultimate confrontation is the cross of Jesus. At the cross of Jesus, God confronts our sin, our rebellion against him, our disobedience, our rejection of his reign and rule over us. This enmity that exists between us and God where he was our enemy, God addresses that at the cross. He confronts our sin and he righteously judges that in, and his wrath is poured out. His truthful wrath is poured out. But Christ intervenes. As the son of God, he steps in and he absorbs the wrath of God in himself. See, the cross is the ultimate picture of confrontation of truth and love as Christ intercedes on our behalf, taking what we deserve. It's confrontation, but it's truth and love. And see, without confrontation, there isn't reconciliation. Without the cross, there's no way you could be reconciled to God. We need the cross. So we, uh, we, last week we... I sort of begin this discussion by talking about one of the causes of our conflict. Um, we can't uh, really speak the truth in love to one another without understanding what's underneath the conflict, what drives it. So what, we looked at one of the causes last week, and, uh, and the underlying thing underneath that is idolatry. Um, so the first cause that we talked about last week was fear. And out of, out of our fear, um, we, we're worshiping something and in a fear of losing that thing, we respond negatively, we hurt one another, and we deny the gospel. But this week, we're going to look at, uh, at something else. So here's, a, here's my plan for this morning. Uh, we're going to first talk about uh, the second cause of our conflict, namely lust and the thing that, uh, that drives that. Um, secondly, we're going to... Um, thank you, by the way. Um, I, I actually have the screen down here, and, and you don't have it. It's, it's breathtaking. Some of the best slides I've ever made. You guys are missing it. Uh, so... Uh, now it's distracting. Um, so uh, secondly, we're talking about uh, how our conflict is seen by the world in, in a negative way, and then how the, the gospel responds to that. And then thirdly, uh, we're, we're going to approach the question, do Christians ever part company? Is, is there a moment when you can't reconcile and you go separate ways? And so we'll close with, with that this morning. Uh, before we get going, uh, let's pray, and uh, we'll get started. Heavenly Father... Uh, I pray, first of all and foremost, that you uh, would soften our hearts. Um, beneath all conflict is pride. And the thing that stands between us and resolution and reconciliation is pride. And so we ask that you remove it. That we, you, you would send uh, your, your, your spirit, that you, would, that you would get a hold of us, that you would humble us. Help us to see the cross in all this. Help us to remember what's been done for us. The mercy and the grace that you've poured out on us. And if we can live in that mercy and grace, how could we not give that mercy and grace to others? Uh, I pray that you are, uh, you are glorified in, in all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so, uh, if you have your Bibles with, with you, would you please turn to James 4? This was the passage that we just read. Uh, James is a letter written by uh, the half-brother of Jesus, the younger half-brother of Jesus. He actually didn't follow uh, Jesus until Jesus died. Uh, 
And then the resurrected Jesus appeared to James and got a hold of his life, and James became an elder in the Church of Jerusalem. Most of James's ministry really was about Jewish Christians or for Jewish Christians. And he writes this letter to them, and one of the things that he broaches uh, the subject on is conflict. And he gives us a really good uh, place to, to show where conflict comes from. He says this, in verses one through three, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Um, the word passions there is, is better translated as lust. Um, it's, it's not a word you find in your English translation because in, in our culture, lust usually have a, has a pretty singular definition to it. It's usually only associated with, with sexual lust. But in the New Testament, lust is actually a much broader thing. John Henderson um, uh, helps us understand a little bit better. He says, lust can refer to a selfish desire for anything that I do not have but desperately want. Lust expresses cravings to please and promote the self. What do you not have but desperately want? And so this is what James is pointing out. He says that this, this, this lust of these, these passions that are they're waging war in you, and, and it's out of this desire, there's all this conflict. And, and what we're seeing in this conflict is murder and covetousness. Now, I don't think that what James meant was that the, these Christians were actually killing one another. What is he talking about there? Well, he, he remembers what, what, what Jesus may have said in, in Matthew 5, when Jesus expands the definition of murder. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Ever, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. See, Jesus expands the definition of murder. It's, it's not just physically laying your hands on somebody and, and, and physically taking their life. It's this anger and bitterness and malice that you hold towards somebody, even if you never lift a hand against them. We've all committed murder, just to be clear. And, and, and he says that the source of, 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 of this sin against one another is our passions, our lust for something that we, we desperately ha want but don't have. He also says covetousness. It's where we, we look around and, and we see that somebody has the thing that we really, really want and we want to take it from them. We see that, that somebody has something and, and, and we want it so bad. We wish that they didn't have it. We wish that it was ours. Covetousness is what he says. He goes on, verses four. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He, he just said that our passions are at war within us. In other words, he's acknowledging we're Christians, but he's saying, all right, Christian, you, you, you have this, this heart that, that, that loves God, wants to follow God, and yet you also have this heart of flesh. You, you have all of these desires. You, you have all of these, like, and, and there's this, this, these passions, they're, they're waging war inside of you, and, and you can't choose the world and choose God. You, you can't serve two masters, you can't, in a second he's gonna use this word, uh, you're, you're double-minded. You can't be double-minded. You need to be of a singular mind. You have to choose, basically is what he says. Or do you suppose 
It is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. If you're a Christian, then you belong to him. His spirit is in you. If you're a Christian, your heart is his. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The solution to the conflict, he says, is make a choice. You can't serve both God and anything else. Whatever it is that drive in your lust over here, whatever it is that you're worshiping, you can't serve both. You have to make a choice. Either you align with the world, with the flesh, or with the devil, or you align with God. Make a choice. You resist one, and you submit to the other. Submit to God is what he is urging us to do. And then repent. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's time to make a choice, he says. But out of that choice, there's repentance. You know, the reality is, is some of you have conflicts with someone else. And you're not bothered by it. And that's because you don't understand God's heart for unity. You don't understand God's heart for unity. You don't understand what it does to the heart of God and how he grieves over the conflicts that are waged between us. You are looking at this conflict there and and all you can think is that you want to be justified and you want to be right and you want to be proven and you want them to be wrong and you want to come out on top. And James is saying you should look at that and grieve it. You should look at that and weep. You should look at that and mourn. The fact that the Son of God came to reconcile you to him and he shed his blood to make an enemy his friend and look at the lengths that Jesus has gone to. And here, you would take that forgiveness for yourself, but you would withhold it for somebody else. You should mourn that. We should grieve the conflicts that wage between us. We should be bothered by them. We should not rest until they're resolved. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Last week, we spent some time addressing those fears. We had a list of fears, and, and, and if you'll take those fears, if you'll take a solid look at what it is that you fear, what it is that makes you anxious, what it is that, that keeps you up, if you'll take those fears and you'll begin to pull the threads on those, they will lead you to what you worship. They will lead you to the things that you exalt. They'll lead you to the things that you're looking to to save you. And so like we did with our fears, I want to look do that with, with our lusts this morning. I have a list. I could see it, but you can't. I'll post it on the Facebook page later. But here's the, the, the first thing on the list. Approval, praise, or acceptance. If you remember, uh, Peter, he was called out on this last week. Um, Paul con- confronts him in the fact that um, he, uh, he had a, a fear for, for the approval of, of, of a certain group of people. Uh, and when he was in the church of Antioch, he was hanging out with Gentile believers as he was eating with them and spending time with them. But then this religious group from Jerusalem comes, and because he's afraid of, of losing their approval of him, he disassociates with these Christian Gentiles. He acts like a hypocrite, and he denies the gospel. Uh, Paul says, like, we're all saved by faith. And you're denying the very truth of that by, by your behavior. 
And so on the one side of this coin, it's fear, right? Now, this list that, I, that I'm going to walk through with you, it's going to sound familiar because it's mostly the same list as last week. But there's two sides to the coin of fear and lust. On the one hand, if you have the object that you worship, then you fear losing it. On the other hand, if you don't have the object of your worship, but you desperately want it, then you lust after it. So let me ask you, whose approval are you after? Whose praise or acceptance do you desperately need but don't have? And how will that lead to conflict? What would you do to a coworker in order to have the approval of your boss? What would you even do to a family member in order to have the approval of a stranger? What would you do to, to someone in your own house church in order to gain this person or that person's love or affection? What lengths would you go to to go after this? How about this one? The idol of physical health, fitness, body image. By the way, most of the things on this list are actually good things. There's nothing wrong with these things. But there's a problem when we take good things and we elevate them to God things. So on the one hand, right, if you have physical health, you're in good shape, right? You're, you, you, you can... Uh, perform physically, like you, you're, you're strong, you're, you're, you're healthy, you have the, the, the right figure. Uh, on the one hand, if you, you, you wanna, you're worried about losing that, that's fear. But on the other hand, if you don't have that, but other people do, that's lust. And you look around you and somebody else has the hair color that you want, or the skin color that you want, or the teeth that you want. You look around, they have the, the right body shape, they have the right fitness level. They, they can run, they can go the distance, they can have, and you, you may have aches and you have pains, or, or maybe you're struggling with sickness or, or, or long-term illness. You see what somebody else has and you desperately want that, and out of that, conflicts come. Gospel is denied. How about this one? Prosperity, wealth, or financial security. Is there anything wrong with those things? But on the one hand, if you have prosperity, wealth, and financial security, you might be afraid of losing it. And so you react desperately to hold on to it. But on the other hand, if you don't have it, what will you do to get it? What will you do to large your bank account? What will you do to, to feel financially secure? Who will you hurt in order to get it? How about this one? Entertainment, comfort, ease, or peace and quiet. Um, there are days that I cannot wait for the boys to go to sleep and I could just plop down on the couch and turn on the TV. Can't wait, right? And, and, you, and you plop down on the couch and, and, the, and the TV's on and you hear, Mommy! <laughs> right? Or, or, or do you ever work for the weekend? Like you, you gotta get through the week. You gotta get, you know, all of these tasks that you have to do in order to get to the weekend. You get to rest, finally. For, for Melissa and I, we take a Sabbath day. For us, it's on a Friday, every Friday. And um, for us, that day is about rest. Uh, we take naps, we eat donuts and chips, and we read books, and we just, we don't work at all. The phone, it goes in the drawer like it's about rest, okay? And I long for Fridays to come sometimes. I can't wait for Fridays. But then Friday rolls around, and what happens? The dishwasher stops working. The car breaks down. Planning on going on a date that night, and the babysitter cancels. 
right? And all of a sudden, there's just like, there's anger and there's bitterness and it's coming out in your words and you're really short with your kids and you're, you're, you're just, ugh. Why? Because you're worshiping this thing and you're wanting it so bad and it's taken away from you. How about this one? Emotional or sexual pleasure. Some of you are not married yet and you can't wait to be. You are longing for it. You cannot wait to be married. And you actually are worshiping the idea of it. To fulfill these needs that you have. And since you can't wait, you're hurting yourself and you're hurting others. Some of you are married, but your spouse isn't fulfilling you emotionally or sexually. And so you're turning elsewhere. And whether that's pornography or that's that feel-good chick flick film or that romance novel, whatever it is, you're looking to something else beside your spouse. You're damaging your relationships. And for those of you who aren't married, you're damaging your first future relationships by turning to other things. You want something so bad that you'll do whatever you can to get it. And out of that conflict and the denial of the gospel, I'm going to go out of order here. Doesn't matter to you since you don't have a slide. Food, drugs, or alcohol. We turn to things to cope. Life is stressful, life is hard, and we want to feel good for a moment. And, and with, with the right chips and dip, with, with the right craft brew, right? Like uh, you, could, you can ingest that and the endorphins fire off. Ah. Right, to feel good. We turn to things to cope. But, 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 but there's this, something that happens where, where all of a sudden, like, this is the thing that you're looking at. This is the thing you're looking for, and you need this. You need it so bad that, and so you'll do anything you can to get it, and oftentimes that leads to conflict, and it leads to broken relationships. And I don't think that one's too hard to explain. But I'm gonna go back to this one. Personal freedom and autonomy. You might remember last week um, we talked uh, about one of these issues and I said, you know, um, some of you are, um, uh, you're, I, I've hurt your feelings today, but don't worry, people on the other side of the issue will have their, hurt, their feelings hurt today, this week. That's, that's this one. Okay, you ready? Personal freedom or autonomy. You know, when we're young, we, uh, we, we fight against the authority of our parents. We rebel against them in order to get our, our to do what we want, right? Um, Americans are often like teenagers, Adult Americans oftentimes act like rebellious teenagers. We really, really crave freedom. And um, the reality is, is uh, we have freedoms in this country that most people around the world don't have. We have a lot of freedom. But when those freedoms start getting pulled away from us, we react passionately. Very passionate. Um, to illustrate this, um, uh, Tim Keller has a, has a book on, on preaching, and he instructs young preachers to, that when you preach to address the, the false narratives that people believe in culture. And one of the, those false narratives that he outlines is called um, the, the society narrative. And, uh, and, and underneath all these narratives, there is a Judeo-Christian ethic that has been twisted. Okay? It, it's an attempt to have uh, many of the things that comes out of Christianity that is good and positive, and the world wants to take them, but they want the, the kingdom without the king, so to speak. And so they, they take these things and they, they separate them from God. But it comes to this, this idea of, of personal freedom and autonomy. He writes this. Christianity saw every person to be created in the image of God, and therefore possessing an inviolable dignity. 
Western secularism has gone far beyond that and is radically and increasingly individualistic. The highest purpose of a social order under this narrative is not to further the interests of any group, nor to promote any particular values or virtues, but rather to set all individuals free to live as they choose without hindrance, regardless of any communal relationships, as long as they don't harm someone else's freedom to live as they wish. Choice becomes the one sacred value, and discrimination the only moral evil. Here's an example of this. Um, for the pro-choice position, the argument, my body, my choice, has been used for years. My body, my choice. Now, the Christian will look at that argument and say, well, wait a minute. Your freedom infringes on another's freedom. Because yours isn't the only body that's at stake here. Right? Now, in the last year, what we've seen is that same argument has been adopted by the American Christian in regards to the vaccine. My body, my choice. Now, I want you to think about this. First of all, I'm not advocating for the vaccine or against it. What I'm trying to get us to see is what is the idolatry that is behind our motives, behind our decisions. That's what I want us to see, right? As Americans, well, put it this way. The question really is, are we Americans with a little bit of Christianity sprinkled in, or are we Christians with a little bit of American sprinkled in? See, if you're an American with a little bit of Christian sprinkled in, you are going to worship your freedom and your liberty. If you're a Christian with a little bit of American sprinkled in, you're going to follow Jesus. And be reminded of what Jesus said. Pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus said, if you want to save your life, give it up. Those who would try to save their lives, those who would try to maintain their liberty, those who would try to, to, to hold on to their freedoms will ultimately lose them. But if you'll lose your life for my sake, you'll ultimately find them. You see, the path for us as Christians is not to, to more freedom and to more autonomy. The, crass, the, the path for us as Christians is more suffering. Do you realize that? It's more serving. It's not up, it's down. And Jesus was the ultimate example of that. We'll talk more about that in a second. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, right? We could add a lot more to it, but I want, to, want you to notice about the list is that um, many things on this list are good things. But you take a good thing and you elevate it to a God thing. And you look to it to save your life. And what that does is it denies the gospel. It wrecks your relationships, but it denies the gospel. It denies the goodness of God because you think you have to look elsewhere. It denies the greatness of God because you think that you have to do it yourself. It denies the graciousness of God because you think that you have to earn what you don't have. It denies the glory of God because you're worshiping something above God. It denies who God is. It denies what God has done for you. So James closes out this section. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Interesting question. Who are you to judge your neighbor? We're gonna come back to that in a second when we go to the next point. Um, 
Uh, flip over to 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at uh, the latter part of verse, or well, part of verse 5, and then, or chapter 5 and part of, of chapter 6. Um, Paul writes 1 Corinthians also to address conflict that's going on in the church. And the first conflict that we see in chapter 5 is that apparently there's a, a man who is having a sexual relationship with his stepmom. And Paul says, not even the pagans do that. And yet here you are, Corinthian church, and you're allowing that to happen. And so he addresses it, chapter 5, verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This man's already working for Satan, go ahead and hand him over. You know, oftentimes, I think we need to be handed over to our gods in order to find out that they're not gods. We need to be handed over to the things that we think will save us so that we'll find out that they don't actually save us. We need to be handed over to the things that we worship to find out that they're not worthy of worship. We need to go down that path in order to see how how big of a dead end it is so that we will return and come back to Jesus. And that's the goal for this man, for Paul. That's ultimately the goal. Look at verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, on the one hand, you have a person who says, I'm a Christian. They would say, I believe in Jesus. I I take the the shed blood of, of, of Christ Jesus, like I take his mercy and I take his forgiveness and I take his grace, and that means I get to go out and do whatever I want. No. See, that that demonstrates a person who, they may have an intellectual understanding of what the gospel is, but their heart's not changed. The spirit comes inside of you and it begins to change your your desires and the things that you want. You begin to to want different things. You want to to want righteousness and you want holiness and you want to do what God wants you to do. That's, That's the response of the gospel. That's the response of the Holy Spirit living inside you. And so if you have somebody who is is saying, uh, thanks Jesus for dying, I'm gonna go do what I want. They don't understand the gospel. They're not a brother. Put them out. But the one who is a brother, you are to judge. You are to judge. Uh, Look at uh, chapter 6, beginning of verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So James says, you're not to judge one another. Paul says we are to judge one another. How do we reconcile the difference? When it comes down to it, it's all about context. It's all about context. Uh, James is talking about someone who is prideful, who is out of the lust of his heart, is worshiping something other than God, and as a result is, is judging and condemning one another. So one is based in pride. Paul is talking about humility. Paul is talking about a, a reconciliation that, that should come between two believers because of what God has done for them. Reconciliation that leads to, to, to the gospel being proclaimed and honored. One is pride and one is humility. 
we as Christians are to confront. We are to deal with sin in our midst. We are to lovingly speak the truth in love to one another in order to protect the unity of this people. We are to do that. So what's the answer? What's the gospel response? Because the world is looking on. In fact, you know what? I think there's two things that we, that we should talk about. One is something that I see within our own church. Of, of, of bringing uh, our conflict in front of the world and allowing the world to judge it. Facebook. Instead of going to somebody who's wronged you, instead of dealing with somebody with truth and love to someone who has offended you, going to them in person, you blast them on Facebook. And you're friends with unbelievers and the world sees it. Using Facebook as a soapbox for your issue rather than dealing with people truthfully and in love. What does Paul say? He says, I say this to your shame. Here's the second thing. I think we see this in the church at large. That there are uh, individuals or groups who consider themselves to be watchdogs of the Christian church. And they're always on the lookout for that individual or that church that's doing it wrong. Right? What, what's interesting about this, or maybe it's sad, is that people oftentimes, they take uh, truth or doctrine and unity and they, 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 they think that they oppose one another. That oftentimes we pit unity and truth so that if a church is, is, is all about truth, they're accepting the fact that they'll they'll lose people. They'll break relationships. But a, truth, a church that is all about unity, it's gonna be really soft on truth. We have this, this false idea that, that truth and unity are opposed to one another, and that's not the case. The reality is, is truth is supposed to bring about unity. Truth of who God is and what God has done, that creates unity with God. It creates unity with one another. It's never truth or unity. It's always truth and unity. It's always truth and unity. And so we have these watchdogs out there and, and, and they see a church going the wrong way. They see a Christian leader doing the wrong thing. And instead of going to them and sitting down with coffee to them, they're going to write about it. They're going to blog about it. They're going to put a podcast together about it. Who's that glorifying? When you think about this. If you're a Christian pastor and you want to start a blog or a podcast, okay, you know, write about godly marriage or, or write about what the Bible has to say about raising kids or or. or You'll only get a few hundred followers for that. No, write, write about or, or, or podcast about the fall of a church and have 100,000 followers. Who's being glorified? Who's being honored through that? It is, it is taking something that happens within the church and it's putting it before the eyes of the world and saying, see? And Paul said, this is shameful. Shameful. It's not the truth in love. It's about the elevation of self. It's about lust. It's about looking at that page and seeing six digits numbers in terms of followers. So Paul answers the question, verse seven, or asks two questions in really answer to the big question. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? 
when it comes to the conflict that is happening in this Corinthian church, why not suffer wrong? Why not be different? Here's the thing. Most of our conflicts are unresolved because of one thing. We are waiting to be justified. We are waiting to be called right. We want more than anything for the world to look at us and say, you're right and they're wrong. We want more than anything for the person we're in conflict to say, you're right and I'm wrong. We want to be right. We want to be right more than we want God to be glorified. And Paul's response is, why not rather suffer wrong? When you're given the choice between you being glorified, being proven right, or God being glorified, prove God, show God, be wronged for him. Be defrauded for him. Do you understand that Jesus was wronged? He who knew no wrong, who did no wrong, allowed himself to be wronged. He who never took from anybody was defrauded of his own life so that we could live. See, this is the gospel response. Point to Jesus. You know, look at that same list. You know, uh, approval, praise, or acceptance of people. Did Jesus live for the approval, praise, or acceptance of people? No. He was despised and rejected by men. How about Jesus' physical health, fitness, or body image? Did he, did he live for those things? No, he was pierced for our transgressions. How about prosperity, wealth, or financially security? Did he live for those things? No, he emptied himself and became a slave so that we could know the wealth of his kingdom. Did Christ live for entertainment, comfort, ease, or peace of quiet? Hardly. Man of suffering. Who had people surrounding him at all times. Barely could get any peace or quiet. Why? So that he could show us what God was like. Did he live for emotional or sexual pleasure? You know, Jesus was a man in every way like us. Hebrews says that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with weakness, but one in every respect who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He didn't live for those things. He lived a pure life so that he could be the pure atoning sacrifice. How about food or drugs or alcohol? Did Jesus try to dull or, 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 or assuage the, the suffering that he went through by numbing it, by turning to created things? Or did he allow his father to sustain him? How about personal freedom or autonomy? Did Jesus live for personal freedom or autonomy? The night before he's killed, he's lying face down in a garden and he's crying out to his father to remove this cup of suffering from him. And in the end, what does he say? Not my will, but yours be done. Was he fighting for his own freedom and autonomy? No. You see, we should reflect what Jesus is like in the way that we live. Our conflicts should be resolved with one another when we are willing to be wronged. Our conflicts should be resolved with one another when we want God to be glorified, not ourselves. We want him to be proven righteous, not us to be proven right. So one final question for you as we close. What if reconciliation can't happen? Do Christians part company? What if you've done everything that you, you're supposed to do? 
What if uh, you have gone to this individual in humility, you sat down with them, you've explained the truth as you've seen it, you've been open to the fact that you may have perceived it wrong, you listen to their truth, you listen with the intent to hear, you demonstrate love, you demonstrate mercy and grace that you've experienced, you've done everything. Like Paul says in Romans 12, 18, as far as it depends on you, seek to live in peace with everyone. Like you've done all of the work, and yet at the end of it, you, you realize you still can't walk together with this person through life, through Christians part company. Uh, in uh, Acts 15, we, we read about um, a, 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 a conflict that happens between Paul and Barnabas, and they part ways. Earlier on, uh, they uh, went on a, a missionary journey, and, and Barnabas says, hey, let's take this guy, John Mark, uh, with us, and, and so they go out on this journey, and uh, John Mark turns tail and heads home right away. He deserts him. And, uh, and so a little while later, they're going to go on another journey, and, uh, and Barnabas says, hey, let's take John Mark. And, and, and Paul's like, no, he deserted us before. Why, why would you do that? No, we're not doing that. Uh, this is what we read in Acts 15, 39 and 40. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul took Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So we have two Christian leaders who are dividing and separating from one another. How do you explain that? You can sort of imagine the conversation. It's not recorded, but, but there is someone who is in the wrong here. There is somebody who's in the wrong. You, you can imagine Barnabas going to, to Paul saying, look, you know, you were somebody who, you targeted the church. Like, you, you arrested Christians. Like, you were an enemy of, of God, and then God got a hold of your life, but people didn't believe you. They didn't believe that you'd switch sides, and so they, they weren't gonna let you in. I let you in. I showed you grace and I showed you mercy and I invited you into this. And here's John Mark. And yeah, he messed up. But will you show him the same grace and mercy that you've received? Who knows what happens if that's the way it went down. But they divide. And here's where the cool thing is. The grace of God kicks in. The grace of God goes with, God blesses both of these men in their ministry. They're not going the same way. They're separated from each other. There's still conflict, but God blesses both of them in their ministry. But here's the good news. That's not the end of the story. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Timothy, he says this about uh, John Mark. He says he's very useful to me for ministry. Um, he writes to Philemon, he calls Mark my fellow worker. It seems that by the end of Paul's life, reconciliation has finally happened. Reconciliation with Barnabas, reconciliation with John Mark. So much that they are walking and they are doing ministry together. We need to understand something. Reconciliation is always the goal. It's always the goal. When you look at Matthew 10 and this, or Matthew 17 and the steps that you would take to, to reconciling with, someone, with somebody, reconciliation is always the goal. 1 Corinthians 5, the guy who's sleeping with his stepmom. Reconciliation was all the, always the goal. In fact, 2 Corinthians says he was reconciled. You see, reconciliation is always the goal. So let me ask you, if you're in this conflict with somebody, first of all, have you done everything that you could do? Have you gone to them with the truth in love? Have you confronted for reconciliation? Have you been humble? Have you done everything you could? But secondly, if you don't have reconciliation, are you closing the book on this relationship? Are you deleting them? Are you unfriending them? Are you canceling them, as like our culture would say? Are you closing the book on that relationship? Or 
Are you holding out hope that God in his grace can reconcile you in the future? And see, if you're gonna hold out hope, in the meantime, pray this. God, I pray that you will bless them. Ask God to bless them in the way that he's taking them. God, I want you to bless them. And pray that over and over and over again until you actually mean it. Until you actually want that for them. God, bless them. Here's the deal. God didn't shut the book on you. God didn't delete you. He didn't erase you. He didn't walk away from you. Instead, in his enduring love and steadfast patience, he sent his son to die for you and for me. He didn't blot us out of his book. Let's not do it to others. Um, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and mercy that you seem to have an endless supply of. We encounter it. And we encounter it when um, when we've wronged someone and they, they pour it out on us again. God, I pray for anyone here who needs to confront. Pray that you give them the courage to do so. And if they need help, I pray that they would reach out to an elder and help them walk through that. God, you have been so, so generous and good to us. Lord Jesus, thank you for willingly coming and standing between us and the wrath of God. God, thank you for dealing with our sin once and for all. Holy Spirit, enable us to live out of that power, out of that grace, out of that mercy, and out of that forgiveness for one another so that the world may know. In Jesus' name, amen.